So the most most spectacular event um, was undoubtedly uh, the boom-bust cycle in, in housing activity. Um, and one way to gauge that is to look at the fraction of all that we produced in the country by way of goods and services that's devoted to con residential construction activity. And residential investment rose uh, from 4.1% of gross domestic product, so 4.1% of all we produced, in 1995, devoted to housing, to 6.2% of GDP in 2005, an almost 50% increase in the share of economic resources in our country that were devoted to uh, housing activity. Now, the popular view is that the expansion uh, in housing activity was excessive. Uh, a large part of that increase, um, however, I believe, uh, clearly reflected some solid economic fundamentals just strong income growth over that period, and strong employment gains, and low long-term interest rates that factored into mortgage costs. Another supporting factor, however, was the multifaceted public policy commitment uh, to boosting housing activity and home ownership. And it, that's, that runs from the gamut from the favorable tax treatment that uh, mortgage borrowing enjoys to the implicit subsidies that flowed through the housing-related government-sponsored enterprises. In addition, I think uh, one contributing factor was the genuine innovation that we saw in mortgage lending and securitization. Uh, different mortgage products, uh, expanded range of access to mortgage products, um, and securitization that took on more sophisticated forms that helped make, these all helped make mortgage borrowing more affordable uh, to a wider segment of the population. We can't lose track of and, and lose sight of that benefit uh, of that wave of innovation. But in retrospect, I think it's clear, we can see that that beneficial innovation was accompanied by uh, lax underwriting standards by many lenders, overly complex and opaque uh, securitization, and expectations of future housing price appreciation by many borrowers, lenders, investors in mortgage-related products. In essence, I believe what we saw was a housing boom that was driven by economic fundamentals, but that was intensified by mortgage market participants' assessments that were, in hindsight, overly optimistic. Now, some commentators have claimed that the housing boom and bust and the resulting turmoil in financial markets illustrate the, uh, some fundamental flaws in modern financial markets and institutions. I think before we jump to such conclusions, we need to evaluate the extent to which risk-taking incentives in financial markets have been distorted by actual or perceived government financial safety net protections that a lot of institutions involved in that whole process seem to enjoy. It strikes me as quite plausible that the major shortcomings of our system of housing finance are attributable primarily to the distorted behavior of institutions that were viewed as too big to fail. So, by the middle of this decade, evidence began to signal that the boom had gone too far in housing. For example, the number of vacant homes began to rise. By the end of 2005, the homeowner vacancy rate was 2%, which at the time was the highest value that had been seen in that series in several decades. At the same time, many measures of housing activity recorded their peak values for the cycle around that time, the end of 2005, early 2006. 
Residential investment has fallen sharply since then, from 6.2% of GDP in 2005 uh, to 2.7% last quarter, and it's not clear when the bottom is going to be reached. Despite this new decline in, in this decline rather in new construction activity, home vacancies have continued to increase, and homeowner vacancy rate has been above two and a half percent for the last two and a half years. Clearly, there's a substantial overhang of housing inventory that remains to be cleared. That boom in construction uh, was accompanied by increasingly large price increases as the boom went on. One measure of home prices increased 192% from 1995 to 2005. And similarly, the bust has led to a dramatic fall in prices. The same index has fallen 20% over the last two years. The falling home prices naturally reduce homeowners' equity values and household wealth, so consumers are less well-off than they were before. Falling home prices have also led to rising delinquencies and defaults and subsequent reductions in the value of mortgage-backed securities uh, that are on the books of many financial institutions. Future economic historians are likely to identify several other factors that also contributed to the onset and intensity of the recession. But in my view, they're unlikely to revise the assessment that this boom-bust cycle in housing was the primary driving factor behind the recession. A relatively rapid decline in residential investment uh, began in early 06. Manufacturing production began to fall in mid-2007 with pronounced weakness in building materials and autos. This weakness on the supply side of the economy spilled over into total spending, which began declining in the final quarter of 2007, uh, over a year ago. And that final quarter is the official peak of the, of the expansion of the business cycle. Around. After spending began to decline, so did employment. And last year, we lost over 3 million jobs. First quarter of 2009, we lost over 2 million additional jobs. I could continue, but these dismal statistics should be enough to convey the severity of the current recession. In brief, the declines in economic activity have been large, it's been widespread. The recession has already lasted longer than most post-World War II recessions. That's the background, so now for the outlook. The most broad array of prominent forecasts, the broad majority of prominent forecasters expect the recession to end later this year, and I think that's a reasonable view, and I'll argue that you'll provide some reasons for that view. I'll begin by highlighting two important stabilizing factors that are often underestimated in looking out at the outlook. One is the resilience of the American consumer, and the other is the power of monetary policy. With respect to consumers, key determinant of any family's spending plan is their current income and wealth, coupled with their view on the incomes they're likely to be receiving in the months and years ahead. Now, it is true that consumer wealth has taken a severe beating in this recession, but it's also true that for most households, the present value of their future labor income, that is to say, picture their future wage and salary income as the returns on an asset and do the standard calculation of what's the current value of that asset at prevailing discount rates, so discount that future labor income back to the present and think of that as an asset they have. For broad majority of households, that value, the future value of their labor income, is far larger than their tangible and financial asset holdings. Consumers typically cut back spending in a recession 
because their wealth decline, but also because their income prospects start to And it looks in the data as if these fluctuations in how they view their income prospects, particularly in the near term, have a dominant effect on movements in their consumers in their consumption standards. At some point, though, consumers look ahead. They become more confident that uh, their, their post-recession employment prospects um, and income prospects are, are just around the corner, and they consequently begin spending more vigorously than would be predicted by an analyst that focused only on their tangible assets, their stock holdings, the value of their stock and equities, the value of their, their homes. This time it's no different. And we're seeing some evidence of that type of resilience right now. I should note that real disposable income, disposable sort of after-tax income adjusted for inflation, has actually increased at a 4.4% annual rate in the last two quarters. So firmer spending in the last few quarters shouldn't be a surprise. And so in the first quarter, we saw that real consumer spending increased at a pretty solid 2.2% annual rate. Consumer spending accounts for 70% of GDP. I'm sure you've heard that statistic before. So this consumer resilience is a major supporting factor in the macroeconomic outlook. Turning to monetary policy, the Fed has reacted promptly and decisively in the current episode. We lowered our target interest rate, the federal funds rate, from 5.25% in September of 2007 to the current target range of zero to a quarter of a percentage point. It was first set in December 2008. Essentially, we've driven the federal funds rate down to zero. This reduction in short-term interest rates, which is typical of economic downturns, makes current outlay, current spending, both by consumers and businesses, more attractive relative to future outlay. Because what you get if you save instead and postpone spending is less, because interest rates are low. And the, the hurdle value, the cost of funds, the sort of internal rate of return hurdle for investment projects is also lower as well. But that's not all that the Federal Reserve has done. Over the last eight months, we have more than doubled the amount of Federal Reserve monetary liability. That's a quantity you might not be familiar with. It consists of currency, the paper currency that's in circulation, plus what's in bank reserve accounts. These are accounts that banks all keep with their Federal Reserve accounts, and they use them to pay each other the way you use bank, your accounts with banks to pay each other. And uh, that quantity, the, the paper currency and the bank reserves, is a, a, a quantity often referred to as the monetary base. And that's, that's more than doubled in the last eight months. And that's an extraordinary, unprecedented monetary expansion. And that's going to have an effect on boosting spending in the month ahead. A set of improving indicators from the housing market provides some further re reason to believe that uh, uh, the recession will end by year-end. Single-family housing starts hit a low in January. We're basically flat in February and March. New and existing home sales, important, important indicators of turnover and uh, liquidity in the housing market, each hit a low point in January and now somewhat higher than their, their low point. One measure of existing home prices has increased in seasonally adjusted terms in both January and February. And we, we have widespread anecdotal reports of increased buyer traffic and firming prices in some some real estate, some local real estate markets. And, and those reports are consistent with these recent statistics. Taken all together, these observations suggest that the housing activity, uh, housing activity may no longer be declining rapidly, and it, as it has been for the last several years. 
We also have some evidence that the worst of the decline in manufacturing is behind us. The usual sequence of events in a recession is that as demand falters, uh, as demand falters, uh, unwanted inventories pile up, and manufacturers then make huge production cuts, uh, large enough to lower inventories, um, even if demand is tough, so to lower inventories even beyond what they think they might need. That's where we are now. Inventory reduction, um, sort of winding down inventory, reducing inventory stocks, had the effect of, of deducting 2.8% from what GDP growth otherwise would have been in the first quarter. So it made the contraction 2.8% larger in the first quarter than it otherwise would be. This sets the stage, this inventory runoff, for any increase in final demand to have to, to translate immediately into an increase in production because you don't have the buffers of inventories to absorb an unexpected increase in demand. So that's why forecasters are looking later this year for spending to flatten out and for production to have to keep pace as spending flattens out and uh, stop falling. Now, we have a smidgen of positive evidence of that now because new orders for non-defense capital goods excluding aircraft, which I'll get that in, uh, increased in February and March. I know that's a pretty esoteric statistic, but it's actually a very popular, widely followed leading indicator of business investment demand. It's capital goods spending, spending on capital goods, so these are goods used to make other goods. Non-defense, because defense marches to the beat of its own drummer. And excluding aircraft, because they're huge, lumpy orders, and it takes five years to fill aircraft demand orders anyway, so it doesn't really make much difference to your term activity. So that figure is one that's a, sort of a bellwether for um, business investment spending. And it it's, looks like it's, it's showing some, some uh, bottoming out in the last couple of months. In addition, we collect, uh, there's a lot of entities actually who collect survey data on manufacturing, and that's a lot, been a lot less gloomy lately. Now, there's, been a, there's a whole bunch of surveys out there, but we do our own here in the 5th District, so I'll highlight that one. Our district is a little bit bigger than the average Federal Reserve District, so it's a good one to watch, and it's got a lot of manufacturing activity in it as well. So um, our manufacturing shipments index, what manufacturers are shipping in the, you know, the Carolinas, Virginia, Maryland, and, and West Virginia, that index has increased from minus 56 to minus 3 in April, and this is an index where zero is neutral, Negative territory, negative 50 is, is humongously negative, and positive is, is good. So it's gone from a tremendously negative reading to um, a fairly neutral reading. And similarly, the new orders, manufacturing new orders index for the 5th district, has gone from minus 54 uh, to minus 2 over the same period. And this is very recent data, so this is, um, this is just from the middle of April, um, and that's the advantage of these surveys. They, they don't give you a lot of, they don't give you um, actual shipments, but they give you a, a quick read. They're really easy to do. Um, and other recent survey reports, uh, both at the national level and other Federal Reserve Bank districts, are um, showing similar readings. So that's some sign like the, that the worst in the manufacturing declines are behind us. And some of the surveys asked about uh, respondents' expectations about future activity. And, um, in many of those surveys, the expectations about activity six months in advance have kicked up noticeably as well. That's the good news. 
to be fair and balanced, I have to add that spending in some other category is still declining at a fairly rapid clip. Non-residential construction has been generally declining for several months now, although we got a surprisingly um, positive number at the beginning of this week. It's still the case that for most um, forecasters, the outlook for is for significant further decline in non-residential construction in the month ahead. Export demand contracted sharply at the end of last year after economic activity in our major trading partners began slowing down. But the worst news is, has been from the job market. We're losing jobs rapidly. The unemployment rate rose from 4.4% to, it was announced, 8.9% um, over the course of two years. 8.9% figures from today's report about uh, last month, April. I was encouraged today um, by the fact that the, today's employment report revealed that um, the number of jobs decreased um, by only 539,000 in uh, April. It has decreased by rates of 600 or 700,000 over the last couple of months. Um, so that's the, the positive news there is that the rate of decline in jobs is uh, diminishing. It's, again, an indicator that we're in a severe recession, that we're taking hope from a decline in the rate of decline of economic activity, however. So, uh, the you know, it's not without irony that I, I, I report that. But still, uh, the fact that employment, the rate of decline seems to have, have um, uh, bottomed out, and now things are declining at a lower rate, suggests that we're, we're going to get um, some positive job reports sometime in the future, potentially. Um, the, the general pattern, however, though, is that um, unemployment peaks after uh, the recession ends, um, and so employment tends to be a lagging indicator in this regard. All in all, then, so while economic activity is contracting overall, uh, so over all in all, economic activity is, is contracting, um, but some spending components seem to have bottomed out. Um, and so the rate of overall rate of contraction is, is slowing, diminishing. Now, if, if this continues, if the emerging stability in housing and consumer spending persists, as I expect and many other forecasters expect, eventually some segments of business investment should bottom out by the end of the year. And, it, and we'll get some help from the inventory cycle in the second half of the year. And economic growth would turn positive by year end. And that's, that's the gist of, of our outlook. I think the labor market, as I said, is going to continue to weaken uh, throughout the year. I think overall spending is going to bottom out before the labor market bottoms out and before unemployment peaks. Economic outlook would not be complete, particularly from a Federal Reserve official without mention of inflation. Last year, I was concerned that inflation was too high. For the 12 months that ended in July of 2008, uh, the inflation rate was 4.5%, the way we like to measure it back. Um, over double what we'd like to see, uh, what I'd like to see is the upper bound on that inflation rate. With the collapse in oil prices so since last summer, inflation's receded, and for the 12 months that, um, that that have most recently ended, prices have risen just six tenths of a percent. So we've had much improved news on inflation. Given the elevated volatility of energy prices these days, it's useful to look through that and strip out the food and energy components and just look at what we call core inflation 
That measure has increased 1.8% over the last 12 months, down from 2.4% reading uh, last summer. Looking ahead in terms of an inflation forecast, prognosticators this year have divided themselves into several camps. Some believe that high, the high unemployment is going to necessarily uh, lead to continually falling inflation over the next several years, and they're concerned about the risk of outright deflation, that is to say a broad-based decline in a broad range of prices, it takes the inflation rate negative. I personally have thought that the risk of deflation was overstated, and I think it's very, very small now. For the first three months of this year, inflation's averaged two and a quarter percent, both for the core index and the overall index. That's some indication to me that the risk of deflation has diminished uh, since the fourth quarter. Another camp places significant weight on the public's expectations of where inflation is going to be. Um, and as near as we can figure, those are fairly well anchored at around 2%. And that, they tend to exert a gravitational pull on actual inflation. Finally, a third camp sees the rapid growth in our balance sheet, the money supply we create, and notes the historical association we've seen between rapid money growth and subsequent inflation. And they wonder, they fear that inflation may accelerate when the economy begins to recover. So you're going to want to know what camp I'm in. Um, I gravitate to the second camp, um, but I think the third camp has a good, has identified a, a clear risk um, that I think is quite a legit, legitimate one. The challenge for us at the Federal Open Market Committee is going to be to shrink our balance sheet and tighten policy and raise rates um, soon enough when the recovery emerges um, so that inflation uh, doesn't pick up and uh, heat up as that recovery begins. The danger is not, not, not acting soon enough, is staying on the sidelines out of a fear of remaining lingering potential sources of weakness, and, that we, that, and not shrinking our balance sheet in time, not tightening policy enough when recovery begins. Choosing the right time to withdraw that stimulus is going to be a challenge, um, and I believe it will be very important uh, to avoid the risk of waiting too long or moving too slowly.